welcome to the Philia podcast. Philia means daughter. We are the daughters of the women who came before us and we fight so that our daughters may be free. We are a women-led volunteer organization. Our vision is a world free from patriarchy where all women and girls are liberated. We seek to contribute to the women's liberation movement by building sisterhood and solidarity among women locally, nationally, and globally. By amplifying the voices of women, particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and by defending women's human rights. Our podcast seeks to shed light on some of the most pressing issues facing women and girls around the world. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. In 1993, Jean Sarson, a public health nurse in Nova Scotia, Canada, receives a call in the middle of the night from a woman in distress. The rest is her story. Jean Sarson and Linda MacDonald, friends, nurses and activists, compiled decades of activism against torture in their forthcoming book, Women Unsilenced, Our Refusal to Let Torturers Traffickers Win. It all started the night they received a call from a woman who shared her ordeal growing up in a family of torturers. Since then, they have listened to many other stories and discovered a world of evilism, as they call it, filled with heinous acts of torture. They have never looked away, though. Instead, they have listened to women's stories for decades and worked relentlessly to get the reality of misogynistic and misopedic torture recognized globally and legally. Our duty is now to carry on their work and listen to survivors to unsilence women. In this episode of the Philia podcast, Jean and Linda share their wisdom on feminist healing, talk about the power of anger and laughter, and tell us about their indefectible hope for change. So I was just wanting to hear from your own words what the book is about, the work that you've been doing for the past decades, and what you hope to achieve with this book being published now. Well... If I go to what I want to achieve, I think I said that in the book, I didn't want to die with my story silent. So I'm finding that very important to me because what I was worried about is that we had this story and it was a story that impacted on women and girls, not only the one woman that we were that brought the issue to us but I just felt that if we died with the story we would be abandoning so many other women and girls because really at the very beginning we really never never really disbelieved that was only one woman in our whole province of a million people that would have had this this ordeal so that's one of the powerful achievements for me is that we'll get our story told and in the end many women joined us in uh, our ability to write the book so that meant that like the title says women unsilenced that i'm not dying silent i would say that's one big achievement 
I just will do one. Linda, you might want to do. So you wanted to, wanted us to say what the book is about and what what our goal was and what was the third thing? Just telling us about your your decades of activism. Okay. So you want to ask? You're going to, you're asking us one question at a time. Just do the what is or all three now. All three now. Just like oh, okay. introducing the the the, yeah. the book. Okay. So what the book is about for me, anyways, is that. Um, it really tells our story, Jean and my story, from childhood to the work that we did with some of our childhood and adolescence and young womanhood and how when we met with the first woman and, and found out that she was a torture survivor, um, we realized that the world really wasn't open to her or to all the other women that we found out about later. So it was a way to try to create a safe space for women and girls in the world who had been tortured and to identify to the world how prevalent torture, non-state torture really is and to show an all, another way of helping that's not pathologizing, that's based on equality between the woman and us. And that is a, is a partnership between two women helping another woman so that there's a collective of feminists that can it shows how women can work together in caring and um, to hopefully role model that way for other, especially young women coming up. Cause we were thinking about young feminists in particular, and we didn't want them to have to go through what we did to try to dig out all of the troubles and trials and risks. We wanted to be able to frame it in a way that, that we could, open that path for those young feminists and that they could step in and say, okay, I want to do this or I don't want to do it, but this is what it's going to involve. My hope is that we will really put a framework that shows another way of healing other than pathologizing. I'm really upset about how women in particular, women who've endured extreme atrocities, such as non-state torture, but all women who've endured any kind of violence, including myself. That's why I insisted I was not mentally ill growing up. And I would rather die than be labeled mentally ill. I wasn't going into that system. I just wasn't. Because it's not fair. Because violence is not a mental illness. And if you label your mind and your spirit as mentally ill, you're starting out in the wrong place. And I really wanted that message to be out there that women don't have to, and young girls and young women don't have to go that way to heal. And that healing is possible. Healing is possible for me, it's possible for you, and it's possible for women who've endured non-state torture. You know, the worst crimes of humanity and they can still heal. So that was a powerful message I wanted. So the hope of that. I wanna, I, I'll ask something about healing, but before that, I wanted to ask you about the term non-state non torture, because I was so, irritated maybe just like a bit like you you also um talk about your frustration at times a lot in the book especially when it comes to the legal acknowledgement but what irritated me a lot is that you have to qualify it as non-state because the whole political system is based on the idea that sexual politics is not politics so it's not just plain torture but you have to call it non-state so I wanted to know more about what is torture how do you explain torture the purpose and how it works some of the 
acts that are done to women and and what is this non-state torture and what you aim to achieve on the legal level at the legal level well i guess in some ways it goes back to your first uh, three questions really because we knew if we didn't find the right name i mean we live in a patriarchal society so how how can you challenge patriarchy and be considered serious at the same time to try to shift shift the concept around inequality to gain equality and we really knew uh, right from the beginning um, that if we did not seem credible in the way we presented that we would be dismissed. And if we were dismissed, that would mean that the women that were talking to us would be discredited because that's what's going on anyway around sexualized violence. So the same thing would happen with sexualized torture because it's just sex, you know, really. And so we were very conscious that somehow we had to have the foot in the door so patriarchy would listen so that we could push to one day it would be great just to know that torture happens and you wouldn't have to it it wouldn't matter who who perpetrated the torture but until we get there because for me like when we were writing the book at the end, I wanted, I said to Linda, we had this discussion. I wanted to put that if we have to have the UN, that we should get rid of the commission on the status of women. What we should have is the commission on e human equality because what's going on now, and this is where we were with the, I'll speak for myself with the torture, we have a treaty over here for indigenous. We have a treaty over there for slavery. We have this over here and this over here. And really it's all the same thing. It's all about human inequality. So how do we bring everybody together and say, this is a human equality issue. And if we all sit in this room and you're sitting there and say, I want this. Well, the question then becomes, well, if I want this, if we're sitting in a room full of equality, is everybody else around that table getting the same attention? So we had this discussion and we decided not to put it in this book. Uh, so in some ways, what has happened when you asked the earlier question about what's the goal for where we're going, we've almost ended up thinking we have to write the other half of the story. But the other thing about getting back to the question about having to name it non-state, because in some ways it's not really ever non-state because so many of the women are perpetrated by state actors too in the domestic sphere, but because we've got this separation <laughs> you have to try to, to work through the patriarchy to try to get your voice in there and be credible. And the other thing that happened to us with this first woman 
which is not in the book, we had very serious attacks trying to shut us down by perpetrators, alleged perpetrators around our profession because we're licensed in a professional association. So in order to work as nurses, we had to maintain our license. So they went after our license, trying to shut us down so that we couldn't work. And then they would have the first woman, they'd capture her again and discontinue. So um, that's why we brought in Capra in the, in the book as his statement um, that you can make models to justify uh, what we were saying. And the thing about model making, to me, it's not patriarchy or non-patriarchy. It's, it's a model about reality. So when we're making models, I don't feel that I'm in patriarchy. I just feel I'm in my feminism, as I say, that this is the reality I'm seeing. This is the reality I'm explaining. It belongs to me. <laughs> And I'll share it with you, but I've never felt that the models were about patriarchy at all, actually. I knew that they could look at it, at the model and say it made sense or it didn't. So that's why we had to use Capra, but I, I, I don't, I, I've never ever thought of the models of being anything else but Linda and my um, journey. Through, through a reality that we weren't familiar with. So I can understand why it's, why it's irritating, but I, I think I, Linda and I so often talked about how many women came before us and how many voices were there and how much was just put in the garbage can, if you will. So I, I had a strong feeling that we had to try to be sound enough that patriarchy couldn't dismiss us because we're not finished yet. We're not finished trying to claim the, the right. And if you look at Article 5 of the Universal Declaration, it doesn't just say only men have the right. It says no one has the right to be subjected to torture. So that's an equality statement, you know? Um, so we're not finished. We're, we haven't achieved that yet, that no one um, shall be subjected to torture. And today we're coming out with, um, with a, a new image, if you will. It's called uh, the non-state torture war. We had to call it the non-state torture war against women and girls. And we put out a model there of around the world of how much so-called non-state torture is going on right around the world, millions. So, so we're not finished. I'll leave that there. Yeah, and, and I mean, we're not just fly-by-nighters, you know that by now, 28 years. Two women are not gonna commit 28 years for no pay for nothing. I mean, we're very, very serious about this. And we have a 60-year plan, and we started that 60-year plan back in, you know, 28 years ago. And people will say, well, is this a surprise to you? Well, no, it's not a surprise to us. 
um, you, you have to be very, very serious to find an opening through patriarchy. You have to be very, very strategic. Every word means something. And you have to be so careful that you can't discredit your work or yourself or the women. And like the other day, a woman was very upset with us, a woman who was prostituted, who asked us the question, you know, is prostitution torture? And we had to say no, because we don't have enough women in prostitution saying it's torture. We can say that the women who came to us endure torture and they identified as torture, but we don't have a critical mass of women who were in prostitution saying, demanding that it be recognized as torture. So we would never devalue their voices or devalue the work of, of what we've done. It has to be a collective of representative of many, many voices. So we're very serious about every angle that we take in, in the work. Um, Jean, you've talked about um, belief and credibility, and we're talking about being serious. Um, when I read the book, talking about credibility, I can, and when I read the testimonies of the woman, I kept thinking, this is incredible. And then it made me realize, it made me think on the word, it, I could not believe that this was happening. I wanted to know how you believed, what made you trust it so, realize this is happening, because this is beyond human understanding and imagination, a lot of the things that we hear. Well, I guess number one, just like I'm looking at you, I'm trusting you. You know, I'm trusting the emotion that you're expressing. I'm trusting the struggle you may have uh, with the book or with the concepts or your own life. And when, like the first woman, Sarah, uh, that came to us, um, well, you know how it started with the telephone call. But for Linda and I, the room that they entered, there was really no judgment, you know. They, they, Sarah just came and was herself. And I think because for Linda and I, it's not looking at the person with a preconceived notion, you know? Like, okay, you asked us if we wanted the questions ahead of time, right? So it's like, no, I'm trusting however you're coming. I, I'm not trying to figure out who you are before I even get there. I figure whatever comes, comes. And it will feel genuine or, or it will not. So for the women, when they talked, it was genuine. And their suffering was off the scale. You, you, can't, you can't replicate suffering like they were suffering like the way Sarah was suffering and um, for the other women that came it was that same thing Linda and I like we said we just went in to say you know I'm Jean Linda's Linda and you're who you are and this is the story you want to tell us so we're here just to listen 
And, and that's all we did is listen. And it was just believing what they were saying. There was, there was no sense of nonverbal or even verbal feedback that would tell us that they weren't genuine. So just believed it. And every time we went back with their story and say, okay, have we understood? Where did we misunderstand? What do you want corrected? The pattern of connectedness was always the same. It wasn't, it wasn't like if somebody's not genuine, you could talk to them today and maybe a week down the road, you talk to them again and the story is not it's not connected. Your left kind of thinking, well, how does this make sense? Because a week ago, this wasn't the same, but it wasn't like that with the women. The story was the same path over and over again. And they just kept expanding on, on their story. And it was never just thinking back. Did I ever have a moment that I did not believe them? And I would say, no, sometimes um, what happened, if Linda and I started misunderstanding, what would happen, our own feelings would get, would come and we'd look at each other and we'd say, we're feeling like we're going, it's like when you're on a river and you're going one path and all of a sudden we'd be feeling like we're off, off the river. So it was, it was our issue that we were misunderstanding what, what was coming at us, or how we were understanding. So really, it was about understanding ourselves and being very aware of our own responses about whether whether we were doubting our own understanding and, and not, not the women's stories. And I mean, I think being nurses helped us because the nonverbals were so dramatic when, you know, when you're listening to such horror stories, especially when it started with Sarah, I mean, her nonverbals, I mean, her screams were blood curdling, curled up in a ball in the corner in a room, um, her eyes, when she was disassociating, you could just literally see them going into the back of her head. Um, the, her breathlessness, like you, you can't, act, you can't act that over and over. And, and what would be the purpose of her to keep coming back and doing that? So once we'd had her as a foundation stories story, you know, a reality, and she started out with more of the milder stories and it just became more extreme and more extreme and more extreme. And that's how women tell us they, they tell the, the easiest ones first. And by the time she got to the horrendous ones, why would we doubt those when all of the stream beforehand was all true, you know? And I mean, I know back then we hadn't heard a lot of atrocity that we're hearing now today. We're hearing a lot more atrocity that's happened to women and girls. Even, so even back then, I think it was more glaring how shocking it was. But um, it just had a, a trust in, in her as a person that she wouldn't be subjecting herself to, the, to this for any purpose. And the other women's stories came the same, you know, and they folded in. The only time that 
I wouldn't say we didn't doubt her suffering or the ordeals. We just doubted the way that she was distorted and lied to, to retell them. You know, we had to help them reframe them that, you know, they weren't what they had been told was happening because in the psychodramas or whatever. But we didn't doubt that the goal was always the torture of them and, and, and how they tricked them into that and, and psychologically tortured them. So no, never, never had any, I mean, you just have to understand witness nurses witness a lot of human suffering in many different forms in death and dying and pain so you learn those nonverbals, and these were very consistent with any other uh, nonverbals I'd seen in suffering. There's another thing that really surprised me um, in your work is that um, you talked. I'm glad you talked about the river because you completely go against the tide and everything that's being done. And what I found fascinating is that you have such a strong feminist analysis, whereas from my experience of um, care and also what you tell in the book, um, care of women tends to be either overly medicalized, what you were saying, Linda, or sex neutral. And even among um, care workers that work, for example, with women who are exiting prostitution, with women who have experienced extreme forms of violence, I haven't seen necessarily a feminist reckoning. How can you explain this feminist, such strong feminist reckoning that you both of you have, even at the very young age, where do you, can you explain that? If there well, is an explanation. I, I think, I think when I stood behind my mother's leg and called my grandmother a bitch, you know, um, I think probably it happened there. I. I you know, I couldn't, I couldn't have told you that at three, obviously, you know, but I think it cemented how I felt. And of course, um, I think because my mother left and went in as a single woman, I watched, I watched the misogyny, how much sexism she had to deal with, how much oppression she had to deal with, how much intrusiveness and misogyny she had to deal with and and I don't know I think it also comes because it's like I had to decide that if I was going to survive I had to make up my own mind about things so I don't remember ever even as an adult woman in my th 30s um I don't remember spending any time reading feminist literature, really. <laughs> it's like uh, I decided I had to make up my own mind. And actually, what played in a vital part bes besides surviving the torture, um, I went to the Northwest, the north of Canada into Aboriginal communities that were very isolated. I spent 11 years in the Arctic. Uh, and the, at that time, um, the northern communities were fairly isolated. Some of them had not actually seen Caucasian um, people 
maybe 10 years in some of the communities they had lived off the land uh, their whole life. And watching, I was nursing, and what would happen in these isolated communities, professionals from south, which meant other provinces in Canada, not outside of Canada, where we always call coming south, like to Nova Scotia or Ontario or wherever, they would come up with superiority, classism, um, privilege, and it, it drove me to, to no end, to have to stand. I would go through the community and tell the women, now listen, when this crew comes in, you don't have to let them in your house because they come in wanting to study us and including us, meaning me, about how, how we could survive in isolation like we were surviving. And so I'd go around to the women and say, you know, just because they come in and they want to come in and study you, you don't have to let them in. And um, in some places there were just nursing stations and some place that meant I was alone in the community as a nurse and because often nurses would come in and they'd last a few months and leave again because the workload was always so heavy. Um, and in some places like in Anuvik, which at that time in Northwest Territories, um, there was a hospital there. And when I went there, I had to do things like get the administrator of the hospital to come down and say to them, okay, you bring your wife here, put her on this table, examining room, and there's only a curtain that everybody walks by and it flips open. So there you are as a woman with your legs up in stirrups and people walking by and the curtains uh, flowing. And because they were Inuit or Indian women, they weren't being treated with equality and respect. So I'd have to do things like that. I drag him down and say, okay, I want a solid wall here because that woman is on the table with her legs up doing, often it was for venereal infections because a lot of the white men that came up um, sexually violated, took advantage of their positional power of whiteness. And I'd say to him, bring your wife here and put her there and let, let her tell you how it would feel. So I'd get the walls up. It was always that struggle to have a voice for individuals that I felt, a whole community that I felt were a vulnerable group. So I think my feminism just built on those kind of responses um, because there was no TV. There was, you know, I, I was at the height of probably the feminist movement. I was very isolated in, in these communities. So I, I was just building my own position. So I would say that besides growing up and watching my mother and my Northern experience, I would say had a strong influence on my sense of feminism and feminism and nursing.
I think for me, I tried to figure that all out. And I, the best I can come to is I think I was born with an, an innate sense of equality and how equality is important. And I can remember as a child, I knew that my parents were wrong. So it didn't matter, if, you know, I could hold adults accountable because if you believe in equality, then you want the truth. You're always searching for the truth. What is the truth in this situation instead of what people are acting like is the truth. So the truth was my parents were wrong, even though they were my adults and they're supposed to be caring for me. And supposedly adults are right. You know, children are taught that adults are right. Then I went to school and there was a, an, indig an indigenous population of kids in the school that I went to, a Catholic school. And I saw that there was racism, that they were treated less than we were. It was very obvious to me. I thought all kids saw that, but I, they didn't because I've talked about it since to my peers that we went to school with. And they have a total different memory of the school process than I do. And then, of course, the nuns and the priests were terrible. They were just so abusive. I thought, well, you know, it's as bad as home. And it didn't matter if they were so-called religious people. They were still misopedic. You know, they had the hatred of children. And I looked around and saw my mother being beaten because she was female and women weren't treated equally. So it, I think it just came from a sense of equality. So I don't have any trouble with, I mean, I know I miss, miss things in reality. There, there was, I didn't understand homosexuality or lesbian when I was little because nobody was out visible enough for me to see that. And there was no conversation, but intersectionality is not a hard concept for me because that's how I framed in the world when I was little. How are we as people? What is the truth about equality? Those weren't the words I used, but that's what I was always looking for, trying to understand relationships. And boy, when you look for it, there's a, there's a mess, you know, it's just, and, and feminism is just part of that. You know, that we, we're not good at equality. I really like the fact that in the book you have mixed in your stories that you've talked about quite a bit today as well um, in the mix and you add your own testimony. And the thing with women, I don't know of any woman who hasn't had an experience of some form of sexual violence, abuse. And given that we all are in some, to some extent, in need of a healing, but we all are in, to some extent, also somehow hurt. Uh, how does feminist healing look like? How can we help each other out? Something you were talking about, Linda, earlier. Well, I think we have to, um, we have to undo any misogyny that we were, internalized misogyny that we were taught and stop, um, as women stop being competitive with each other or jealous of each other or trying to control each other. I think that's really important and learn to work together, earnestly work together, caring about each other so that, you know, it's not about who's going to get ahead here. It's how we can, how we can move forward together. And that's what Jean and I are hoping that we role model because that's how we work. You know, it's, it's just, it makes for such a quality of life in the work that you do. If you're working together, not, you know, pitting oneself against the other, because what will that prove in the end? You're not much of a helper if you can't even work with another woman, you know? 
And uh, I mean, we have very few disagreements over these last 28 years and we've worked through them all. It hasn't been, it hasn't been a big, big hurdle because I think we, we both have such a strong uh, goal of uh, making a better world, especially for women and girls. And that's, that means that we have to be together on that goal. And I wanted to say too, that my ultimate goal is, to, is prevention for little girls so that little girls or little boys aren't born into such families or that if they are, they're found earlier. And so we have to really be committed to work together on that. So, you know, being honest with each other, trusting each other, caring about each other. Um, you know, I, I know that if I need to um, have support that Jean will be there and I'll do the best I can. If we have a difference of opinion, that doesn't mean that we, we don't uh, care about each other. And so that's, we don't need to use harsh words or, or try to pull each other along. We're just walking beside each other. I think that's the role modeling that we want to show. The other thing I wanted to say, it relates to this question. When, when I lived in the Arctic, as, as a nurse, I had access to the birth control pill to give to Inuit or Indian women before Southern Canadian women had access to it. And so this woman came, and she, an Inuit woman, and said she didn't want any more children. So I prescribed the birth control pill. And what was important about that is not she was no sooner home with the pills than her husband appeared at the nursing station. This is an Inuit man who had no science and no education, appeared angry that I had given his wife a pill that would keep her from getting pregnant. And what that taught me is the ingrainedness of misogyny that whether it's inherited through our evolution, I don't know. I'm looking at this man who knows nothing about science, hasn't, hasn't been indoctrinated with TV, you know, has really like a zero knowledge, but yet by that one act, his masculinity was challenged. So how we as feminists uh, are going to care around each other, I think not only do we have to recognize how patriarchy has men internalized misogyny, but women internalize misogyny. And if we don't, as a woman, if I don't question how I act, and if my actions are really based in, if we want to say, evolutionary misogyny, then we're never going to get to the issue of equality, because there's, there's more people on this planet who probably have been conditioned into misogyny than those of us who have struggled to decondition ourselves to misogyny. So for a feminist caring, I think we can't excuse ourselves as women. 
I, I really don't, I think. And Linda and I had quite a bit of conversation about this in the book because we're holding women accountable in the book. There were women who were torturers uh, without question. And actually the women that attacked us and tried to get us um, take our license away, alleged perpetrators, they were all women. So I think as feminist, instead of fighting with each other, like what's your theory of feminism? What's your theory of feminism? How about what's, what's our um, respect for each other as women, as human beings. And like Linda said, you know, you can have a difference of opinion, but if our ultimate goal is to have equality, why can't we accept diverse ways of getting there? Um, and we don't seem to be able to do that. You know, it's, Attacks come from every side, it seems to me. I mean, that doesn't say that everything is right, but to keep fighting and fighting and fighting instead of saying, okay, we have a problem here. How will we find the middle road? And Linda and I often call the middle road because you have this side and this side and it just seems we can't come to the middle and walk with the unified voice of how are we going to make this planet an equal place for, for everyone without damaging each other repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And that's one of the reasons that often when Linda and I talk, if we have the time, we often say we present together. Even if we only have 10 minutes, we share each five minutes because it's important. It's important that we each have a voice. It's like listening to the women. If we're fighting, we're not listening to each other. We're fighting all the time. So it's like role modeling. So we share the time. We shot. And, and it's important that we share the women's voices with equality too. Um, and that was one of the reasons when you talk about feminist caring, we could never have written the book without putting some of ourselves in there. Because outside of that, it would feel to me that we were talking about women, not talking with women, there's a difference. So um, I feel strongly about that, about the book, that if, I mean, we're self-publishing, so we have that freedom, but we talked about that too. Like if a publisher said, well, you have to take your own stories out of there, forget it. It wouldn't, it just wouldn't have worked. And speaking of that, actually, uh, we, we did have that, that position in a chapter that we wrote on, in a handbook on human trafficking, um, because it was written with uh, Elizabeth, 
as a co-author with us and they were struggling about how we wrote it because it wasn't it wasn't the way they perceived but we won our case they put it in as is so um, I think that's the middle road that coming together how do we come together equally um, and practice that equally yeah, we were, were accused of being enmeshed with the women survivors and we were accused of toxic over-involvement and all of those things because we see them as persons and as women like us. And to me, the only difference between them and us is the luck of what family you're born into or what street you walk down or what, you know, what person you came in contact as a teenager. Like it's all, most of it's luck of the draw. So I don't see myself as any different than any other woman. Um, any of those things could have happened to me. And I, I feel very strongly about that, that that means that they deserve and, and I I'm demand myself to treat them equally. Well, how else could I do that? I mean, if you want to promote equality, you have to help the people that you're helping with equality. You can't help them thinking that, you're smarter than them or that you're um, better than them or they're not. I mean, when we, when we go somewhere with a survivor, they travel with us, you know, we go to places together, we sit down and eat with them. I mean, we don't just have them as some object that we drag along to talk. I mean, that's just not the way it would be. So if people think that's a measurement that, and even feminists good on them, if that's what they want to call it. But to me, it's, it's a equal personhood in the process. We, yeah, I find that's called oppression. Yeah. I, I think if we don't understand oppression. We, uh, we don't understand oppression. So that's where I wanted to get at. We live in a world where torture is heralded as a simple game. And um, we kink. have a whole, sorry. Yeah, kink, a fashion yeah. industry built on it, uh, pornography built on it. Um, and... It was already irritating as it is, but after reading your book, <laughs> I found it even more irritating. So what does it mean? What does it feel like to evolve in a world where torture is under-acknowledged and even celebrated? Okay, well, what it means is I'm infuriated all the time. I really am. Like I was looking at something that Caitlin Roper um, posted on Instagram yesterday, um, where this ad in the mall, I don't know the, she's from Australia, so I don't know uh, the company, but the ad was a, a woman being choked. And a little video, and they had this as an ad in the mall. And so girls are gonna, and, and she's screening. She's got the gag on and she's got the, the BDSM outfit on and she's screening where she's being choked. So of course, Caitlin is upset and so she should be. And I thought, oh, my God, now, it's not the epitome of sexualized torture, right, in a mall, a video, and it's promoting femicide. It, it, it's just absolutely the worst scam there ever was that patriarchy can make women and young girls believe that by being choked or breath games or um, you have a code word or whatever that you're being whipped and that, that 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 is has anything to do with sex 
or fun or healthy sexuality. I mean, it's just, and to think that men can get off in court by, by torturing a woman to death, it's infuriating. It's absolutely infuriating. And we have to get a hold of this because it'll get ahead of us if, if we don't otherwise, you know, I mean, there's have, there has to be enough of us that get infuriated about it and stop calling it. It has nothing to do with sex. It's just the sexualization of torture. Women are being tortured right in front of us and we're, we're missing it. Not even, it's not even being hidden anymore. That's my, that's my, I'm just, uh. yeah, well, besides infuriating, it's exhausting. Um, I mean, Linda and I talk about this sometimes every day because it seems, it seems that you don't even have a chance to get up out of your chair when another one is ahead of you and it's like, there's no end to it, which is the truth. It seems like there's no end to it. And here again, I think women have bought into it with the language we use. I, I keep going back to the oppression and the misogyny because some a thing like who would have said that being trafficked into exploitation pornographic exploitation, prostitution exploitation, that that was sex. I mean, we call it, the language is sex tra trafficking. I mean, and women buy into the language too. You know, what do you mean it's sex trafficking? That's a whole human body. That's a whole person, you know? So the conditioning the conditioning that we have to oppress and to harm and to minimize the harming, it's a very serious, it's a very serious emotional track that we've gone. I, sometimes Linda and I, we have the discussion whether our brains have evolved enough because we are an evolutionary species. Like so far they know, I think it's nine evolutions that have got us here and there's still more species out there that they haven't discovered because they don't have the money to investigate all the caves where we, our ancestors hid in, you know, but whether some of it is anatomical, biological, certainly it's evolutionary. Our language is evolutionary. And the conditioning is so profound. Um, I, I, as a public health nurse, I developed a program in school to, for 10 year olds. They wanted to call that sex education. I said, no. It's relationship education. And I kept track I, uh, before the program was um, stopped because of public health funding. But almost a thousand evaluations, the kids said what I was teaching was a, a relationship with yourself, like the model is in, in the book. And 90% of the thousand children said that was the most important concept they learned. 
It's trying to decondition how we sexualize everything instead of developing emotional awareness about the language we use, the simple word like sex trafficking, that has a huge impact. And I, I think I became really aware of that when I lived in the Arctic because each indigenous community spoke their own dialect. So they weren't exposed to what the conditioning we had. They must have had their own exposure. But the sexualization, you know it now, and, and pornography and stuff, um, it was still going on. It was still, that's why I wondered about the evolution. It was still going on in some ways because little girl children, they were seen as um, a burden if there were too many. So they put them out to freeze to death outside. So that language of devaluing femaleness, if you will, I, I, I'm left with thinking there's an evolutionary process that we're, we're missing the point. Because how is it that so-called nomadic people make a decision that girl children are dispensable? You know, how, how do you do that? The whalers that came into the Arctic, some of them were so-called pedophiles because the stories go back where the, the men on the ship like the little Inuit girls, you know. So to think that the Inuit people didn't have a resistance to saying, no, hands off our little girls. That just means that to me that there was an evolutionary process in there because even the white men who came into the Arctic, the Inuit women were, if you will, exploited and prostituted and they didn't understand that. So, to your question about how do we deal with that? I think we have to look at our species much more cautiously and, and hold ourselves really accountable for the language because a language conditions us about how we think, how we perceive the reality in the world. And for Linda and I in writing the book, Language, how we use the language was a constant, a constant. Simple thing like, and sometimes we ran into difficulty with publications because of the words. We would not say prostituted woman. We would say a woman who was exploited into prostitution. So that's five words compared to two words, you know. So patriarchy uses two words. It serves a purpose. So, so language is really, um, I think language is, is, is really vital to our unconditioning because to me, if I say prostituted woman, that affects my brain. 
that affects how I'm seeing the world. It affects how I emotionally am feeling. Prostituted woman. I mean, that's a put down just in two words. So. Yes, the, the, the end of book, I think readers will enjoy um, finding some of the neologisms that you use and some of the words you use as well. And you, Linda, have talked about infuriating and it really gets um, to one of the, I have two more questions. Uh, and one of them is about anger and something I've noticed in the testimonies in your book and also testimonies of um, women who survived rape is that the anger is not immediate. It's something I've noticed. It comes maybe at a later stage. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was my impression. But I was wondering, how do you let the anger in? Because I feel anger is a much more healthy feeling than, than we give it credit for. I feel that what you were saying earlier about the image, if you're not angry, you're, you're, you're kind of missing the point. So how do we instill anger in women? Well... See, I never had that problem because, I mean, I was angry from the time I was little. I didn't realize I internalized anger, but I also could express it outwardly to others. So like there's different kinds of anger, right? Anger is a complex emotion, but it's vital. And you cannot be an activist if you don't have anger. I don't think it's possible because anger is the fuel that um, moves you forward because you're in, you're in constant um sense of indignation because of the violations of their human rights of people around. So you have, you'd be desensitized if you weren't angry. I mean, I'd be worried about myself if I wasn't angry. So I think you just have to trust yourself to feel it and go against the socialization because we're socialized from the time we're little girls, not to be angry. Um, I never thought of it that way. I really didn't. I, I didn't think about whether I could, that's one thing I, I guess because my mother, she was so focused on my father. She really, she really didn't tell me very many rules of any kind. You know, I was more like the adult and the family. So I didn't have that rule that you couldn't be angry or you couldn't do this or couldn't do that. Not verbally anyways, nobody told me that. And I didn't think about it that way. And I used to get angry in school. And so I, I grew up being angry and like I say, unfortunately, I internalized some that I wasn't aware of. I learned that later in life. So you have to, you have to learn, be careful and not be, be sure what you're internalizing and what you're expressing. But my heavens, what, what do you do if you don't get angry? You know, you get despondent. You, you give up. You think it's hopeless. Um, I mean, the, the righteous anger is liberating. You, you can't let it consume you. You know, because then, of course, you you destroy yourself and any possibility of any helping in the world. So there's a fine balance. Like every day I'm angry at things, but I also know that I can only do so much. So I have to focus on what my role is and what my goals are and recognize all the like I'm really upset now about Belarus and that reporter there because freedom of speech is so important and democracy is intimate to my spirit. So I'm angry about that, but I can't think, well, I'm going to go and. I just can't go there. I know that I'm angry, but I have to stay on my track of non-state torture. I can be angry for him and upset about Belarus, but still stay on my own track. 
And then I have to balance and say, okay, now I've had a thought about enough anger for the day. What has, what's been good that's happened in the world today for me, or what's funny or what's beautiful. So I surround myself with not just anger and I don't kind of burn up in it, but it, 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 it anger is a, a friend, you know, I just embrace it like a friend, the same as I do hope or, or um, a caring and the other, the emotions. Being pissed off every day is it's just a routine. And when you were talking, Linda, it reminds me, Linda and I took a master's course. And we went in saying anger is healthy. Well, the professor just about had a fit because she never saw anger as healthy. She always had it as unhealthy. So... <laughs> I, when you were talking, I can still see her up there and we're sitting in the class and everybody's looking at us and we're saying, you know, <laughs> anger's healthy. You know, if you don't have anger pissed off at, at, the, at the way the world is, I mean, there's something wrong with you. And <laughs> yeah, I think I was pissed off most of my life and I'll probably die pissed off. That's just a given because patriarchy and misogyny is there and the struggle to get to the middle is a challenge. But the issue that's really important for me and thinking about the, the women is the women that have intimately come to us, they had no emotion because disassociation, you're flat. And to me, it's a marker of their healing when they keep saying, when they call up and say, I'm angry. Yes, <laughs> what am I gonna do with this anger? Well, the one thing we know is you have to name it. We've always taught, okay, you have emotion. So in knowing yourself, it's to start the ability to name that emotion. Because like if I'm talking to Linda and say, I'm pissed off as hell today, you know, I'm angry and I'm feeling that, what that feels like. Sometimes it's like your head is just going to bounce right off your shoulders. And other days it's, yeah, I'm really, I'm really pissed off. But for the women, because their violations have been so profound, their anger when they were told all their lives that they didn't have anger or they didn't have any emotion, they didn't say anger and they were disassociated. It's pretty terrifying to all of a sudden feel these emotional feelings. So that's why it's so critical in my mind that they understand that's normal. And often it's the marker of really, of healing. Because anger then says, I've been hurt, society's hurt me. And that's, that's a vital piece to know that society is hurting. And we talk about that in the book. I mean, what's the sense of you and I having a healing conversation and you go out in the world there and it's, it's crap, you know? As soon as you step down the stairs, it hits you with oppression and misogyny and and what have you so it's it's an important step in healing to know 
that not only are you angry at what the perpetrators did, but you can recognize anger socially, that how society is treating me is wrong and I have a right to be angry with it. I think, I think that's a mark of feminism in my mind. Because I'm sorry, Jean. Because it, it just rec you're recognizing that the world that you live in is unjust and unfair, and you have the right to be angry and act upon it and name how you feel. And I think any woman that says that they're not angry about the world and the injustices that women and girls endure, well, then patriarchy's got them. You know, because really that's the, that's the turning point emotion that you have to, you have to embrace it to really see the truth of the world. If you're not seeing the truth of the world, then you're, you're not, you're not uh, embracing who you are as a woman or who your daughters or granddaughters are and what they have to go through. And I just, I take pride in my anger because I say to myself, I, they didn't get me. The, the they being patriarchy. If the they had got me, I'd be sitting here just smiling and beaming and, you know, pickling tomatoes and saying, I love my life. You know, it's, it's just, there's a lot of crap out there. So I can't do that. I can smile and laugh about some things, but not about the reality of patriarchy. And I, I will die in the same way. And I'll be proud they didn't get me because I can die angry. I'll ask something, final question, because there is still an ode to happiness in your book and the importance of laughter. So I was wondering, the other side of the equation, how do you let the happiness and the laughter back in as well? <laughs> we laugh every day. We're laughing right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I think just speaking the truth, speaking about how you feel and swearing <laughs> is sometimes very helpful. I mean, some of the women, they get upset when they start swearing. We say, oh, that's good for you because sometimes that's the only thing you have when you're pissed off as hell, you know? <laughs> All you can do is swear. Yeah, for Linda and I, I mean, we talk about this a lot. We laughed at ourselves so many times for so many different reasons. Um, sometimes initially, if I go back to 1993, sometimes our imaginations would run wild. Like <laughs> some of the first stories, like what in the hell is going on out here? You know, I mean, <laughs> It was like reading a horror story, you know, and our imaginations would go over there. And then we'd have to check in and say, come on, you know, like we're getting kind of carried away here, you know, <laughs> let's get, let's get back on track. And we had a lot of laughter around some of the, some of the thoughts we had. It's like torture humor with the women. We, we laugh at the torture humor because they were worried they were worried that it made them a bad person to have torture humor so we had to address that and no i mean how else can you not have some 
way to have justice <laughs> if you can't just kind of imagine what you would do with some of these <laughs> fuckers, <laughs> you know. So we'd laugh, we'd laugh at those things. And when the women were healed enough to go there, they'd laugh with us. And we were very cautious if you're just thinking about the women, like with Sarah, we didn't laugh around Sarah for a long time because she would have seen that as laughing at her instead of with her at situations. But for Linda and I, oh, sometimes we do crazy things and think, why in the heck did we do that? And then we find it funny. Um, some of our conversation just is funny. And I don't know, we laugh every day, really. I guess what it is, is that I, I'm not, I've never been depressed or de have depressiveness. I've never felt hopeless or had hopelessness. I've never felt that what we're trying to achieve is impossible. You know, I've even growing up, I, I never ha had those kind of emotions. Not that people don't have them, but I think it becomes a way of looking at the world. I think um, if, you, if you embrace reality and accept reality, then those kind of negative, if you will, negative, they're not only negative, they're hurtful. Those emotions don't come in to preoccupy your relationship with yourself. So I think then you can go out and see beauty. Like I've already, before I'm even talking to you, I'm already was outdoors in the, in my garden, you know, um, and, and marveling at all the flowers that are growing out there. And um, and I guess if you feel there's some contentness in self-acceptance, accepting who you are as a person. And I think when you can do that, when you do stupid things, you can kind of laugh at yourself and it, it's not harmful because you're not internalizing it, that there's something wrong with you. You're just accepting that, okay, that was kind of stupid. So it was kind of funny. You know, you shrug it off and move on, I guess. And I think when we, we when Jean and I, I just laugh thinking about this. When, when we stand back and look at ourselves, right? Because we've been attacked for all kinds of things and we're hearing more negativity about us again now, I guess it's because we must be surfacing in a different way. So we'll get lots of attacks. So we'll have to deal with that. But humor is one way to deal with it. And we were accused the other day of just being two individuals, right? You know, we don't, we don't have a nonprofit. We're not aligned with any university. Yeah. We don't have any structural grounding other than ourselves, right? <laughs> I mean, I think it's funny because it drives people crazy. And, you know, we can come in. I mean, we're, we're talking at these things and everybody's got all these organizations they're behind. And then and there's Jean and I. And they'll just have Linda McDonald and Jean Sarson. And that just gives me such a hysteria because... <laughs> 
you know, you don't need all those really if you don't believe in patriarchy. So we, we're not doomed by patriarchy. We're not embarrassed that we don't have them, right? So that's funny. And I picture, you know, what it's like when we come into a room and people think of us, I mean, they told us as we look like just two little women from, you know, two little nurses from a little town in Nova Scotia that nobody knows. Who are these two people, right? And then we start talking and, you know, we're not afraid of power, positional power. So we'll challenge any power structure in the room because of the inherent belief in equality. Hmm. Structures and positional power does not make you any more important than I am. And it doesn't make the women any less important to, to be advocating for. So that's a fun, but it, it creates a funny situ- situation too. You know, it's like, I think it throws people off and I can't do anything about that, but I find it funny because it's disarming. You know, we can be disarming and that's a good thing because maybe it'll open people's brains up differently. And or they roll their eyes at us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. You know, it's just, I get a charge out of this because we really we don't have, you know, we, when you listen to us, if you listen to us talk, there's no limits. We have no limits to what we would do, you know, other than be illegal. You know? <laughs> be illegal. But we don't have any fear about who we would challenge or where we would go. The only restraints we have is that if we can get in or how much it costs or some of those structural things, but we don't have any fear. Mm. So it, make, it makes it kind of funny. <laughs> Yeah, I was looking at, we applied to present, and we got accepted. I mean, we often throw this out there and just say, okay. And I was looking at at how they have us listed. They have our names and nothing behind it. And the two other people presenting have this long list. <laughs> and they're related to the UN and some, somehow they have this long list and Linda and I are looking at that and they're just our names and blank, <laughs> nothing. And I'm looking at that. And of course, those things strike us funny, you know, because they are kind of funny. I mean, and we drive the conspiracy theorists crazy because they try to <laughs> pit us into a box that we're funded by this group or some conspiracy about that. We don't have any conspiracy. We're just, <laughs> we're just two women that set out on a goal to try to make a difference for an extreme crime. And it happens to put us in very unusual circumstances. And that's not the norm, you see. So it throws them off. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that. And I do think you are, you are making a difference. (laughs) Yeah, we're funny. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are incredibly grateful to all the women who donate their time and their efforts to create this podcast. That includes our guests, our interviewers, and our editors. You can find us on your favorite listening platforms like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for Philia Podcast. Please help us reach even more women. You can do that by subscribing to our show, by sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your co-workers, or by leaving us a positive rating and review. Philia organizes the largest annual grassroots feminist conference in the UK. We would love to see you there. You can support our work by joining the Friends of Philia scheme, 
by giving a solidarity ticket so that even more women can join our conference and by subscribing to our newsletter. Please take a look around our website, philia.org.uk, to find out more. Together, women make magic happen, and we can't wait to be in touch with you.